0: The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, July the 10th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm not Mike Pesca. I'm Felix Salmon. I'm f- sitting in for Mike Pesca. And I can tell you that although Pesca sounds fishy, it's not a fish, it's a peach. So we don't even have the fish thing in common. I have a few different hats. I have a day job at Fusion, which is a digital and TV network which is doing fun experimentation in terms of how to present news for a whole new generation. Yesterday was a big day for us because we managed to hire the amazing Lauren Capra to run a whole new section of our website devoted to money issues. I can't wait to work with her. So that's Fusion. And I also come into Slate every week to host Slate Money, which is a weekly podcast about business and finance and sometimes even things like wine. You should subscribe to it and listen to me be mean to Jordan Weissman, Slate's box columnist, accusing him quite accurately of being a millennial. Do oh, no, you have the email? I can go pull it up. Jordan off. has this habit of wandering into the St- Slate Money Studio with a laptop on his lap, stuck to his lap. We're always a little bit worried that we, he. You realise that when you think you're listening to Jordan paying attention, he's only really half paying attention because he's a classic millennial multitasker. He's checking his Instagram, obviously. Everything all at once. Coming up on the show, I'll spiel because it's the gist. I need to spiel. I'll spiel about what various glitches on July the 8th tell us about the complex systems running our world. And set your browsers to incognito as we explore the intersection of art and pornography. I know you do that porn thing. Don't pretend that you don't. But first... I'm going to talk about my third hat. I'm going to put in a plug for my newest little project, something I call Piper Text, where I help get books I love off the ground using a platform called Inkshares. Right now, we're doing a book by a genius Frenchman named Manu Sardier. It's called Treconomics. It's one of the best nonfiction books I've come across in years because for all that Star Trek is mainly thought of as a place for futuristic technology like transporters and warp drives, by far the most interesting thing about it is its economics. A lot has changed in the past 300 years. People are no longer obsessed with the accumulation of things. We have eliminated hunger, want, the need for possessions. We've grown out of our infancy. Economics is basically, at heart, the study of how people behave under conditions of scarcity. And Star Trek asks the question, what happens when there is no scarcity? What happens when everybody can have everything and anything they want? I want you to be one of the first 1,000 Vulcans to get in on the book, but if you're not, you should be, but even if you're not, you should at least watch the book trailer, which includes the supercut of the Captain Demanding Earl Grey from his replicator. T.L.
1: Grey, hot. T.L. Grey, hot. Earl Grey? T.L. Grey, hot. T.L. Grey, hot. Would you like some tea? No.
0: So now to pornography. I know nothing of pornography, of course, but Amy Adler does. She is at NYU where she teaches law and has studied the intersection of art and law. And Amy, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, we're going to talk about pornography. Oh, yes. I was in the Slate cafeteria just a few minutes ago, and I found the only coffee mug I could find, and it's full of censored books all over the coffee mug from Catherine the Rye, Lolita, Animal Farm, Madame Bovary, Howl, Tropic of Cancer, and a lot of them Lady Chatterley's Lover, and so on and so forth, were censored because they were pornographic. But Lady Chatterley's Lover, it's art. Now, is this in any way sort of contradictory? Is there any reason why art isn't or shouldn't be pornographic?
1: These are all famous cases from mid-century America, and it took the Supreme Court uh, 16 years to figure out what they thought was a, a proper dividing line between art and porn. But, so, but
0: they, these are two different things.
1: The Supreme Court assumed they were two different things. And this is the distinction they thought was relevant, is that the difference between art and porn is that no matter how filthy or vulgar or disgusting something is, if it has some special quality called serious artistic value, then you, can, then you can do it.
0: So even if pornography is illegal, if you layer on some serious artistic value yeah,
1: exactly <laughs> some
0: serious artistic intent then that kind of depornifies it
1: immediately so the, so the question became how do you show what serious artistic value you know, this was happening oddly I and mean, this happened in 1973 when there was still kind of a modernist vibe in the air but imagine how ridiculous that concept looked when art has become increasingly preposterous and not you know doesn't look serious at all and so to the extent that there are even prosecutions anymore against adult pornography, the question of serious artistic value would be determinative, but it's extremely hard to to figure out what it would be or why any art would be taken seriously at all.
0: I want to talk to you a bit about the one bit of pornography which, as you said, is, is still clearly illegal, and it's in the news this week with Jared from Subway. Oh, yeah. Um, which Which is child pornography... There's three different things going on here. One is that obviously the children who are in child pornography are harmed by the creation of it. The second is that if you possess like the images of those children, then that means you're sort of complicit in that crime. And then there's a third one, which is just depictions of sex acts with individuals who are deemed to be children, even if there were no children sort of made in the depicting. Where does the illegality lie? And let's talk a little bit about art as well and and the famous Richard Prince case.
1: We've become so worried in our, our interest in protecting children that the actual definition of what constitutes child pornography has become quite broad in a way that actually, I think, ends up criminalizing a lot of what we might call serious artistic depictions of child, mere child nudity. So, for example, the definition of child pornography now encompasses a picture of a child that is contains a lascivious exhibition of the genitals, and lascivious is judged from the perspective of a pedophile viewer, which, in my view, can render many pictures of mere child nudity potentially illegal simply because a pedophile might find them appealing. And so it's, it can be an extremely broad definition. And if you want to talk about some works of art that I think are flirting on this border, we could certainly talk about work of Sally Mann, who's back in the news. Uh, We could talk about Larry Clark's crazy work. And we could talk about Richard Prince.
0: Now, there's one work in particular, which I remember seeing in the Guggenheim Museum not too long ago, (laughs) um, and which I've seen in in auction catalogs and has been sold quite a lot. It's called Spiritual America. Well, what is this piece?
1: I think it's clearly vulnerable to prosecution. I would I would like to say that if it were prosecuted, I think I have a winning argument to save it. But <laughs> the piece is a photograph by Richard Prince, and it's an appropriated photograph, a re-photograph. He took a photograph of a work by a commercial photographer called Gary Gross of Brooke Shields, really, I guess, prepubescent, completely naked, standing in like a steam shower, greased up in some kind of oily something or another, in full makeup, looking pouty. It's a shocking, shocking image of prepubescent sexuality.
0: Do you think that Brooke Shields was harmed in the making of this photograph?
1: This is one of the questions about why we... Should we prosecute images that are merely posing a child in in an arguably lascivious way, as opposed to subjecting a child to... You know, in a uh, molestation for the sake of a picture that's that's sort of the question uh, I think that that courts should consider more strongly. Her mother was there when the photograph was taken. You know, her mother agreed to it from what I understand, but she also objects to it uh, and and actually tried to sue Richard Prince. The mother did no uh, Brooke shields did as an adult, but again, I think I think they they finally worked it out so so there are issues there are legal issues surrounding that image aside from child pornography. But I do think that anyone who possesses it could be vulnerable to a prosecution because the definition of child pornography is so capacious and includes this notion of whether the image is lascivious from the perspective of a pedophile. I think an image of a, of a prepubescent girl in full makeup, her body covered in grease in a bathtub, would very clearly look lascivious to at least some pedophiles. Now, I still think there are ways to defend it, and I think the work ought to be defended. And by the way, I also think it's a brilliant, brilliant work of art.
0: If I have the Gary Gross photograph Mm. on my wall, that's me being lascivious and kind of skeevy. And if I have the identical Richard Prince photograph on my wall, then that's me being a high-minded art collector. What is the difference?
1: (laughs) I mean, in some ways, what's so funny is that the That question, what's the difference between art and non-art, has become the subject of art. Questioning its boundary has become the subject of art. And I think that's why so many artists have gotten interested in pornography, because that high-low distinction is a perfect way to probe that boundary. The Gary Gross photographs were resuscitated as art because the the gallerist, Colin Delan, who uh, ran that wonderful gallery, American Fine Arts, actually went to Gary Gross and said, you know what, let's show you as an artist, and suddenly you know, elevated what was complete trash, one might say, in the eyes of the art world, to art merely by placing it in the context of a high art gallery. So it's that kind of fluidity between art and porn, art high and low, that artists and and people in the art world are playing with at the same time that law is making this dramatic distinction between them.
0: So it's not just the picture. It's also the title. The title is
1: appropriated. Yeah.
0: From whom?
1: The title is appropriated from a picture by Alfred Stieglitz called Spiritual America. And it's a picture of a gilded horse. I think the fact that he took such a degraded image and talked about, you know, gave it that title, Spiritual America made the work that much more interesting. The sort of degradation of American culture and the degradation of art became its subject. And so I think it's a great work of art, and I wouldn't look askance at anyone who possessed it, although I might warn them to get good legal representation or or think about how they would display it. Well, I will will tell
0: (laughs) anyone that of the, I don't know, 1,500 or so people that I follow on Twitter, Richard Prince is definitely the porniest, and he's the most sort of non-safe work Twitter feed that I know. He... Posts a lot of photographs of very porny pictures, often with captions about how they're like distant relations of his and stuff like that. <laughs> He's clearly into the whole porn thing. Is Richard Prince's Twitter feed some kind of weird artistic meta commentary as well?
1: I think it is unquestionably. I think it's brilliant, but a lot of people are infuriated by it, and not just the porn. They're more infuriated by I don't know his very existence, and and they're infuriated certainly by his copying. A lot of the controversy right now around Richard Prince and his latest kind of porny appropriation art stuff is the Instagram stuff. And he's So done... Richard
0: Prince mm-hmm. took a whole bunch of Instagram photos, most famously from the Suicide Girls, who are an alt-porn site, and basically just re-photographed or regrammed them or just created big pictures of these Instagram photographs of Suicide Girls and then exhibited them at art galleries. And people got upset... Mostly just because he was charging, like, enormous amounts of money. I think they were $100,000 each or something like that.
1: Exactly. Yeah, so people were infuriated that he had stolen and exploited these people who'd originally created the Instagrams. And what was really funny to me was the suicide girl's reaction to something that Richard Prince did. And these suicide girls, you know, do... He, as you were saying before, he's so interested in porn. So of course he's ripping off kind of porn girls, and the work is a lot about him. This is a like, he's you know it's about I don't know again his own degradation. He's he's like this leering old dirty old man. He's stealing. He's doing this and that, which makes the work in my view again super super brilliant. But the suicide girls, when they saw that he'd stolen their work and made what I think at the time was sold for ninety thousand dollars, so the discount, the ten thousand dollar discount <laughs> from a hundred thousand. The Suicide Girls took the exact same image. They went actually onto Instagram and added their little line. And they sold an exact replica of the prints, the same dimensions, the same everything, for $90. And Richard Prince said, that's great. But if you look at the disparity in price, Richard Prince between $90,000 and the Suicide Girls between, you know, for selling the same work for $90 – I think that's where you might get an insight into the difference between art and porn or art and everything else. And it's perhaps it's just money.
0: Uh, uh, Art is (laughs) something which costs a lot of money.
1: Art might be something which costs a lot of money, at least today when when the market increasingly defines art. But it also shows something about what it means to steal in our culture. Richard Prince, the Suicide Girls couldn't have charged $90,000 for their image. Richard Prince could, not because of the way it looked, but because he branded it Richard Prince. And the Suicide Girls, even with the identical image, can't make $90,000 because it doesn't have his brand. And
0: even though probably more people have heard of the Suicide Girls than have heard of Richard Prince.
1: Isn't that crazy? And it's, you know, and and it's their image. But the value, and this shows again that the value that we're finding from art has something to do with the name or the brand. And Richard Prince, uh, maybe because we've designated him a genius, which, by the way, is something that I'm, I'm willing to do. You know, many people might disagree. We we think he's worth a lot more just by having chosen the image.
0: So, listeners out there, if you if you feel like making porn and you want to have some kind of protection from the Supreme Court, the lesson of this podcast is just charge a lot of money for your porn, and that's <laughs> probably how you'll be going to be able to persuade people that it's art.
1: Or pray that Richard Prince appropriates you or someone, some famous artist appropriates you. And you may not make money off it, but you certainly will never go to jail.
0: (laughs) Amy Adler, thank you very, very much indeed. It's been fascinating.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And now... The spiel. So Wednesday was a fun day for those of us in the news business. All manner of things went, to use the technical term, tits up. United Airlines grounded its entire fleet for reasons which still aren't clear. The Wall Street Journal's website went down too for a while. The number of stocks which weren't trading on Chinese stock exchanges almost exceeded the number of stocks which were trading. And the number of stocks trading on the New York Stock Exchange for most of the day was zero, because that went kaput as well. My favorite reaction to all of this came from the blog Zero Hedge, which actually also went down on Wednesday for a while, along with large chunks of the Time Warner Cable Broadband Network. The Zero Hedge headline was, is this what the first world cyber war looks like? And the site even provided what they called a real-time cyber attack map, which would allow us to, quote, keep track of the first global cyber war in real time. Zero Hedge was not alone. There was real panic in the markets about what might be going on. Josh Brown is the CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management, the kind of guy that very rich people trust to steward their money in a grown-up manner. But there he was on Twitter telling his 110,000 followers that the Department of Homeland Security was, quote, lying or wrong when they said quite correctly that the New York Stock Exchange going down was just a standard computer failure, that it wasn't some kind of malicious attack. What Zero Hedge and Josh Brown were doing has a name. It's called Illusory Correlation. Nassim Taleb wrote a great book about it, his best book, actually. It's called Fooled by Randomness. Airlines, for instance, get grounded all the time for all manner of reasons, especially United. In fact, something almost identical happened to United last month. And today I got an email mileage statement from United saying I have traveled zero lifetime miles on them. Which I wish was true. And stock exchanges are complex things which fail sometimes with negligible consequences. There are a dozen different stock exchanges in the US, and not a single stock stopped trading for even a second. The trading just moved to, you know, the 11 different alternative exchanges, or the 50 different alternative exchanges if you're including dark pools. As for some of the other things, Well, as a long-suffering customer of theirs, I can tell you that it would be frankly more newsworthy if large chunks of the Time Warner Cable Broadband Network weren't down on any given day. And sometimes three or four of these kind of things happen in a single day. You have enough days, you're going to see a bunch of these simultaneous failures. In fact, we're going to see more and more of them going forwards. On Medium.com, Zeynep Tufekci wrote a really great little essay called Why the Great Glitch of July 8th Should Scare You, which is entirely open about the fact that there was no malicious intent here. Instead, she writes, quote, The big problem we face isn't coordinated cyberterrorism, it's that software sucks. And no one's going to disagree with that. But here's the problem. Everything runs on software. Everything. It's ubiquitous. Let me quote Paul Ford from his amazing What is Code issue of Business Week. So many things are computers, or will be. That includes watches, cameras, air conditioners, cash registers, toilets, toys, airplanes, movie projectors. Samsung makes computers look like TVs. And Tesla makes computers with wheels and engines. And some things that aren't yet computers, dental floss, flashlights, will fall eventually. When Paul writes fall there, he could easily have written fail, because that's what computers do. They fail. Even when they're built to be redundant, they fail. I just lost 15 years' worth of digital photographs because I had my photo library on a redundant RAID drive. But then the disk which failed contaminated the other disk, and uh, I'll try not to get distracted. The point is that computers run on code, and code is, to use another technical term, a mess. It's put together in a slapdash way, and then when it's fixed or asked to do something new, it becomes even more precarious. Everyone's in a rush, and they do something which is good enough, probably, and they fully intend to come back to it and make it better at some point in the future when they have a bit more time. But, of course, that point in the future never, ever happens. And then companies merge, and computer systems get built on top of other computer systems, and everything just becomes more and more and more and more and more and more complex Every single day. These complex systems are startlingly easy to hack, which is one of the reasons why it's easy to believe that when they fail, they have been hacked. But the people who jump to the conclusion that an organization has been hacked, those people are forgetting Occam's razor, which says that you should always select the simplest explanation. And the simplest explanation is always, the computer crashed. I know it wasn't meant to, but it did. It might have been a software error, or a hardware error, or even some kind of weird solar flare activity, but whatever it was, boom. Because every single system becomes more complex over time, and the more complex your system is, the more likely it is to fail. In fact, it's worse than that. The more complex a system is, the more catastrophic any given failure is likely to be, even if it's just completely random and not malicious at all. Zeynep says that there's, quote, a lack of interest in fixing this problem, and I think I actually disagree with her on this one. She thinks that the problem is one which could be fixed if only we tackled it with enough money and enough time. But I'd look at what would be involved in fixing, oh, I don't know, a single mid-sized bank, or even just tweaking the text editor that writers journalists use so they can put hyperlinks in their stories, which, trust me, is way, way harder than you think. And then I multiply that, not only by every company, but by every product, every watch, every camera, every air conditioner, and I know that it could never be done. We would never even make a start. New problems will always be introduced more quickly than old problems are solved. Right now, for instance, there's a lot of talk about the scandal of weak government computer security following the hack into the data at the Office of Personnel Management. But I don't think the OPM security was weak. I mean, it was, but they just had computers, and just like computers will always fail, computers will always get hacked. I went to a talk once by Max Levchin, the founder of PayPal, who is one of the most intelligent humans on this planet. Seriously, he's incredible. He doesn't run PayPal anymore, and he was joking about the way that PayPal still runs the same old code that he wrote back in the day, which is completely out of date today. And of course, he has a shiny new company called a firm, and they would never run their website using that kind of old code. But I wondered, could even Max Levchin manage to overhaul the code for a company the size of PayPal? One of the reasons that great technologists like Max like to start new companies is precisely that it's the only time you get to start with a blank piece of paper and build everything the way it should be built from scratch. Max loves to fund startups and build startups, but the fact is that we don't live in a world of startups. We live in a world of big, old, mature companies, which are often a result of dozens of mergers and acquisitions and which are built on various bits of code going back to God knows when. And all of those systems are going to fail. And they're going to get hacked. And none of those systems can be fixed, so they're not going to fail. And they certainly can't be fixed, so they won't get hacked. And no, the cloud is not going to save you. And in fact, it might even make matters worse, because when the cloud fails, it's not just one company brought to its knees, it's thousands of them. And yes, even the cloud is built on layer upon layer upon layer of non-perfect code. This is what progress looks like. If it wasn't happening, that would be worse. But the fact is that the world is exponentially more complex than it was even a decade ago, and it's getting more and more complex every day, and all that complexity is certain to lead to catastrophic failure every so often. Wednesday was nothing. There's absolutely nothing we can do about it, and in fact, there's not even a lot of point in worrying about it. It's going to happen whether we worry about it or not. Zeynep tells us that we should be scared and be very worried, But I go back to the serenity prayer, which tells us that we should have the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. This is one of the things we cannot change, or at least that we should not change, because the only way to prevent random catastrophic failures would be to reverse the march of progress altogether, and that would be so much worse. And that's it for The Gist. Andrea Salenzi produces the show. Joel Meyer is the managing editor. Andy Bowers is the executive producer. The Gist is part of the Panoply Network, which also includes Slate Money. See the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Follow The Gist on Twitter at SlateGist. Follow me on Twitter at Felix Salmon. And Mike, you'll be very glad to hear, we will be back on Monday the gist trust me on this one it's going to fail